We're exploring a theme together this evening and, and a few Sunday nights into the future, Secularity Explored. Bangor is becoming increasingly a, a secular city. The 2021 census tells us that more and more people in Northern Ireland are uh, identifying that they have no religion. Uh, the figures tell us that that's particularly the case here in North Darnanards. Uh, so when you look at the figures in detail of religious identification by area, we discover that North Darnanards, bottom of this table, is top of the league uh, for uh, people who have no religious affiliation or nuns as some people are calling them. They're, they're called a nun because they've ticked the, the nun box when they're asked to identify their religion. 31% claiming no religion. North Darnanards is the most secular part of Northern Ireland. We've been told and no other area even comes close. <coughs> Here at Hamilton Road, we love the city of Bangor. We, we want to understand this city. We want to know what makes it tick. Uh, we want to understand all of its people, uh, ourselves among them. And we can't do that if we aren't willing to come to terms with the, the figures on the, the screen there, the, the growing secular nature of our city, and hence this series. Let me give you an idea quickly of what we're going to do to explore secularity together. We're going to invite someone who's given this a, a great deal of thought uh, to be our guide. In 2022, Glenn Scrivener published this book, The Air We Breathe. It gives a, a fascinating perspective on secularity and on Christian faith. So this series, Secularity Explored, will be based very much on the material in, in Glenn's book. I've explained my title, uh, so maybe it'd be good to let him explain his. He calls his book, The Air We Breathe. He says that goldfish don't see water. Goldfish see what's in the water. They see what's reflected, refracted through the water, but they don't see the water itself. And yet it's there. It's their environment. It's universal, but it's invisible. It shapes everything they do and everything they see, but they don't see it. And then the author presents his argument. He says, if you're a Westerner, whether you've set foot in a church or not, whether you've clapped eyes on a Bible or not, whether you consider yourself an atheist, a pagan, or Jedi Knight, you are a goldfish. And Christianity is the water in which you swim. Or to say the same thing in a slightly different way, Christianity is the air we breathe. It's our atmosphere. It's our environment. It's all pervasive, but unseen. I, I think I can vouch for this myself. Although I've moved to Bangor three years ago to be the minister here, I grew up in this town. I, I have a sense that over those years when I was here as a kid years ago, that Christianity was very much the air that we breathed. But, yeah, so Christianity, I think I can vouch for this idea that, that some cultures we grow up in, uh, 
particularly in the UK, particularly in Northern Ireland, Christianity really does, does feel like it's been part of the furniture. Fair enough, you might say, that was, that was the case. That was then, but this is now. I know that Christianity's been part of the, the culture in Bangor, but I don't identify as Christian now, so I don't see how Christianity can be the air that I breathe. You might even want to go further than that, where you say, well, I don't think it's the air that I breathe, to say that it's absolutely not the air that I breathe. I left the church, I left the faith, to get out of all that, to breathe some pure, fresh, religionless air. In this series, as we explore secularity, we're going to see that everyone in a culture like ours depends on values and goals and ways, about, ways of thinking about those values and goals that have been deeply and distinctively shaped by the Jesus revolution, by Christianity. These values are now so all-pervasive that we consider them universal, obvious, natural. They are the air that we breathe. So what do, what do I want you to gain from this series? Well, that depends on who you are. Maybe you are a nun. Uh, one, I don't know, I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands. Maybe you ticked the nun box on the census. 31% of people in North Down did. Asked to identify what their religion is, they said none. They don't identify anymore as Protestant or Catholic or, or Christian, particularly in any way. My first word to a person in that position is don't be so sure. Goldfish might not know the, the chemical composition of H2O, but it's still central in their lives. In the same way, if you're interested at all in matters like equality, compassion, consent, freedom and progress, then you're, you're breathing Christian air more than perhaps you realize. In this series, I'd like to take you on a journey where you'll see just how Christianity is the air that you breathe and how Jesus Christ is the beautiful person behind that. We've thought about what a, a nun might get from this series. Uh, we had a, we had a, a young woman from the, the south of Ireland who worships with us. She came up to me after I'd talked about this on a previous occasion here, and she said, Christoph, I've never heard you talking so much about nuns. <laughs> um, so I'm not talking about those kind of nuns. I'm talking about people who have come to the point where they don't identify with Christian religion. What about a second category of person related, but, but actually a little bit different? And that is a, a done, a person who <coughs> was once an insider, grew up perhaps in the Christian faith, but have rejected it. I'd, I'd say that must make up for a good proportion of people in North Down and Ards, because this is a, a part of the world which was so, so pervasively and so deeply Christian. So a done might say, been there, done that. I was dragged for 13 years to Sunday school and to youth groups. No thanks. I've had enough of all that. 
Or you might say, I've studied Christianity at some point or the other, or I was a regular churchgoer, it's no longer for me. If you feel disillusioned this evening with Christianity, and, and maybe more particularly with the church that takes the name of Jesus Christ, let me tell you, I feel your pain. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Nobody sees the church's weaknesses like a pastor does. Nobody sees under the veneer like someone who's made it their life calling to live and work in a community. Let me reassure you that I take any experience that you bring of disappointment with church, I take it seriously and hold it beside mine. I can respect reasons that you might have for thinking that the Christian faith is not for you just now. Nevertheless, I don't want you to think that you're done with Christianity any more than you're done with breathing. Like air, Christianity is so pervasive that we can't help depending on it, even as we protest against it. You might feel that Christianity is unequal, that it's cruel, that it's coercive, that it's restrictive, backward, or whatever. Those, those are common critiques of Christian faith these days in the West. If you're frustrated with Christianity at, at many of these points, stick around. I want to invite you to bring those, those difficulties along with you and to examine them again in the light of simple Bible-based Christian faith. I believe that in the process, you might find yourself uh, returning, coming closer again to the essence of true Christianity. If you're a guest here this evening and you're wondering who these other guys are in the room, that, that's a normal thing to, to think when you come into an unknown place. I, I'd better tell you, there, there's a third type of person here. I'm going to call them the ones. They're, they're not the ones because they've won some sort of a contest. They're, they're people who've been won over by Jesus Christ. They're trying to learn to love him, to follow him. What might a one gain from joining us here in these evenings at Secularity Explored? Well, as I said at the outset, here at Hamilton Road, we love Bangor. We haven't always loved this city as well as we might, but we want to learn to love Bangor every bit as much as we believe that God loves Bangor. And that will mean, as I've said, it mean, it'll mean getting to understand our city, getting to understand its people, perhaps particularly those who feel furthest from God. So whether you're a nun or a dun, I hope you don't mind a few ones uh, sitting in along with you on this journey of Christianity explored, secularity explored, I should say. I'm going to take a few moments just now to explain the, the journey that we're going to go on in this series. You, you may have got one of these cards. Do, do make sure that you take one home with you because it has dates of uh, future evenings in this series. The series isn't going to run on consecutive Sunday nights. It's paced at about one evening per month and the dates are all here on the card. Over the months, we're going to look at five modern values 
values that are held to be universal, non-negotiable, central in our Western culture. And we're going to see that each one were born out of the Jesus revolution. Whether we claim to be Christians or not, we hold these values dear. And it's important that we see that they were given to us uh, by Jesus Christ and the Christian movement he birthed. The first, which isn't on the card because we looked at it last month, equality. We believe in the equal status of every member of the human family, no matter their rank, race, religion, gender, or sexuality. Compassion. We believe a society should be judged by the way it treats its weakest members. Consent. We believe that the powerful have no right to force themselves on others. Freedom. We believe that persons are not property and that each of us should be in control of our own lives. Progress. We believe in moral improvements over time and that we should continue to reform our society of its former evils. As I said, we're going to look at these five values throughout this series. And this evening, we're going to look at compassion. Before we do, let me recap very quickly on the first value that we looked at uh, a number of weeks ago, that of equality. About three years ago, a former Supreme Court justice provoked outrage uh, with a studio audience and with a, a broadcast audience. As he said before the television cameras, I don't accept that all lives are equal. He was participating in the well-rehearsed debate around COVID lockdowns about the rights of the vulnerable in our society to be protected versus the rights of the healthy to get on with their lives and enjoy freedom of movement and to gather. We didn't have time a month ago to rehearse the, the details of that debate in its entirety, but we did explore further this, this comment, all lives are not equal. When anyone questions that, most of us have a deep-seated, almost religious sense that they're wrong. Of course, all life is equal. To question it is an outrage. We learned something interesting, though, a month ago, that our belief in equality and the outrage that we feel when somebody questions it, both of those stem from Christianity, the air that we breathe. Without Christianity, we would not have that strong commitment to equality. To help us see this, Glenn Scrivener asks us to imagine the Greek philosopher Plato being brought into that same BBC studio in January of 2021. There he is. He's blinking under the studio lights. He's baffled by all the technology he sees in front of him. And then he's asked whether he agrees with this claim that some lives are worth more than others. The ancient thinker frowns, you can see it. Not because he's confused, not because it's a hard question for him. He's confused that we're even asking the question. What, what is the debate exactly, says Plato? It's so obvious there is simply no debate. For the father of Western philosophy, it's a no-brainer. Of course, all human lives aren't of equal value. 
There are men and there are women. There are Greeks and there are barbarians. There are the free and there are slaves. There are the rich and the poor. There are the wise and the foolish. There are the strong and the weak. What are you even talking about with your crazy idea of equality? Do you get the point? The belief in human equality, which seems so entirely self-evident to us in Bangor in 2024, wasn't self-evident to many cultures throughout history. And it still isn't today in areas that haven't come under the Christian worldview. Our belief in human equality is part and parcel of our Christian heritage. Christianity insists on the equality of all human beings. I, I think everyone in our culture values human equality. But it's also possible that many have lost sight of where that commitment to equality comes from. We spent the remainder of our time a month ago thinking about how Christianity taught the world human equality. If you want to do a bit of catch-up TV, jump onto our YouTube channel and look for uh, a Sunday evening service on the 20th of January. And you'll hear a bit of teaching there about Christianity and equality. In just a moment, we're going to explore part two of our series and come to another of our culture's deeply, most deeply held values, and that is of compassion. Uh, before we do, we're just going to break this little bit. I don't want you to have to listen for too long. And we're going to sing a song that... Let me just read a short passage from the Bible, from God's Word. I'm not going to teach it in the way that we often and, and normally do, but I'm going to refer to it in a, in a few moments. It's from right near the middle of the Bible, uh, the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 61. If, if you want to see it there in a Bible, it's page 749 in the Bibles in the pews, 749. Isaiah 61. So you have this prophet writing a long, long time before Jesus Christ was ever born. But he says these words. He says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God, and to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They'll be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord, for the display of his splendor. In 2014, a woman tweeted a question into her Twitter account. She said that discovering a, a Down syndrome 
diagnosis in any future pregnancy would present her with a real ethical dilemma, whether to abort or not. Abort it and try again. It would be immoral to bring into the world a child if you had the choice. That was the response offered by Richard Dawkins, the eminent biologist and probably the world's most famous atheist. As is usually the case with this kind of online discourse, Dawkins' advice uh, received a, a, just an onslaught of outrage. People immediately started talking about eugenics and comparing Dawkins' views to those of, of the Nazis. Whenever Dawkins tried to offer a, an apology, he only made matters worse. He clarified that he was only advising a course of action which the great majority of parents in the United Kingdom do in fact take. So Dawkins defended himself by pointing out that he was only taking the common view. Dawkins' view isn't that different from the view of British culture. He could have gone on to say that his advice was entirely on message with the philosophers of the ancient world. So Plato, for example, he thought that in order for a child to be worth rearing, the child must be malleable disposed to virtue and physically fit, if they didn't prove themselves worthy, parents would properly dispose of them in secret so that no one will know what has become of them. Aristotle thought that defective children should be exposed, that is, discarded on rubbish tips, abandoned on hillsides, thrown down wells or drowned in rivers. To quote him, as to exposing or rearing the children born, let there be a law that no deformed child shall be reared. In other words, it would be immoral not to dispose of our weakest. Infanticide was so widespread in the Roman world, in fact in all the world at that time, that the first known treatise or book on gynecology included this vital section, how to recognize the newborn that is worth rearing. If they didn't make the grade, then the advice was always in line with Dawkins. Expose it and try again. Around the world and down through history, the vast majority of cultures have considered that we're better off without the weak. But the furore uh, around the, the Dawkins position and his tweet points to a, a deep conflict within us and a, an instinct within us. Somewhere deep down, we can't escape feeling that we do have a moral imperative to protect the weak rather than to eliminate them. We ought to show compassion. But where does this come from? The German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche identified the culprit in his book, The Antichrist, 
The problem, said Nietzsche, is the poison of pity. Pity, on the whole, thwarts the law of evolution, which is the law of selection. In other words, nature selects the strong and eliminates the weak. Who are we to disobey this law, a law that has given us life? Nietzsche believed that the best way to love humanity is not only to allow the weak to die, but to help them to do so. I'm sorry, by the way, if you find yourself recoiling uh, a little bit from, from some of these ideas, but let's stick with them for a second longer. If Nietzsche were here this evening, he would tell us where the problem with our thinking lies, if we have any bent at all toward compassion. He'd say that we have weak-minded ideas about compassion for the weak, because we have fallen captive to what he called life's nausea. In other words, Christianity. In his book, The Birth of Tragedy, he says that Christianity has taken the part of all the weak, the low, the botched. It has made an ideal out of antagonism to all the self-preservation instincts of sound life. Let me rephrase that. Nietzsche believes that Christians putting themselves on the side of the inferior endangers the survival of the species. What is worse from Nietzsche's point of view is that Christians have disguised their compassion as a virtue when they're really betraying humanity. I've read enough Nazi propaganda as I've visited concentration camps and Holocaust memorials to know how persuasive Nietzsche's ideology became for Hitler's Nazis. Nietzsche was right to identify Christianity as a champion of pity and compassion. It's Christianity that informs our instincts regarding the protection and the nurture of the weak. Without the Jesus movement, it's difficult to imagine Richard Dawkins' tweet prompting very much outrage at all. Everyone would simply agree. If natural selection means the survival of the fittest and the sacrifice of the weakest, then Christianity gives us a very strong counter-narrative because Christianity is about the, the sacrifice of the fittest in Jesus Christ for the survival of the weakest. People like me and like you. This is a moral revolution. It contradicts Nietzsche and the Nazis of this world, those who would give up hope on the botched. I wanna spend the last few minutes sharing with you about the unique Christian vision of God that underpins Christian compassion. Let me begin by asking you, what, what is your picture of God? Who, who do you think God is? It's an important question for people of faith because if we don't have a clear picture of God, then we're, we're following in the wrong direction. But it's also an important question, I think, for a secular person too. 
If I'm a nun, if, if I am sure there is no God and that, that God has no place in this world, I'd need to be clear about what exactly that is that I, I don't believe in. If, if I say I'm done with Christianity, it'd be good to be clear about the nature of the God that I'm walking out on, that I've given up on. So for all of us, an important question, who is God? What is he like? <coughs> Where can we see him? The, the Bible, the foundational text uh, for Christians gives a rather astonishing answer to that question. Right, right on the opening pages, the Bible tells us that human beings, both male and female, bear the image of God, the, the likeness of God. It's not really that God is like us so much as we're like him. Although it's hard to nail it down entirely, Christians are entitled to say, if you want to see what God is like, look to human beings. Now, folks, think about that for a second. Here lies a treasure that's more valuable than all the world because we're being told that we're more valuable than all the world. One of the criticisms I would hear of Christianity sometimes is that it has a negative view of human beings. <coughs> Folks, Christianity doesn't make less of human beings than secular humanism does. Christianity confers a value on human beings that secular humanism could only ever dream of. When we looked at this a month ago, exploring the theme of equality, we saw that this image of God, this, this status that comes with it, isn't given according to a person's gender or rank or race or their physical strength, but it's given to all simply on account of being a human being. That's the Christian basis for human equality. So the Bible teaches that God created human beings in his own image because he intended to show his nature to the world. Tell me this, how, how do you think that's been going? Track through history for a moment about the behavior and conduct of human people. The wars, the conflicts. If you're not a historian, just replay some more recent television newsreels before your mind's eye. Ukraine, Gaza, all the rest. How well have we reflected the image of God in this world? Pretty badly uh, on the whole, I would think. If God really is anything like what, what we have put on display, then I, I wouldn't blame anybody for not wanting to believe in that kind of a God. We'd be mad, any one of us, to follow a God like that. So the Bible teaches, on the one hand, that we were made to show God to the world, but it makes no secret at all of our utter failure. The Bible concurs with that survey of history 
which you've just run in your mind or that view that we have of the world we currently live in. It tells a, a story, a long, painful story of the failure of human beings to live our calling. We have failed quite spectacularly to show the world what God is like. And yet, through that long, dark night of human history, another story is told. We get glimpses of a better story, one that gives us hope that one day God will have the image that he deserves in this world. Isaiah, it's at this point that I want to, to come to Isaiah. As I say, he was writing eight centuries before Jesus Christ was ever born. He spoke of a king who was coming. He'd be anointed, chosen to rule. The Hebrew word's Messiah. The Greek word is Christ. Maybe you're familiar with those terms. In chapter 61, Isaiah anticipates what this Messiah is going to say. Listen carefully and remember what we're thinking about this evening. Compassion. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up broken hearts. And release from darkness the prisoners. To proclaim freedom for the captives. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Not, now we're talking. Now we have what we've been waiting for. A king who's going to rule with compassion. We live in a world where no one is able to show us the true nature of God. But we have this promise of a king who will come and rule with compassion. Christians claim that when Jesus Christ came, he fulfilled that prophecy. He was the human being who finally carried the image of God. Whenever Jesus came among us, we got to see for the first time ever what God is really like, up close and personal. When we saw it, it was surprising. And it was unspeakably beautiful. We had thought that when God would come, that he'd come as a king with an army to exert his power. He came as a baby to live among a peasant family in a nowhere kind of town. We imagined he'd spend his time on, on grand projects worthy of a king. He was the son of a carpenter. He hung doors and made TV cabinets. We had expected that God would spend his time hobnobbing with the rich and famous, that he'd be with the movers and the shakers. Instead, he spent his time with the poor and the insignificant. We thought he'd surround himself with the beautiful and the successful. And to our surprise, he surrounded himself with the bruised and the broken and the botched. Whenever the gospel writers tell their biography of Jesus, the word that they use most often 
to describe his interior world is compassion. They don't use that word. They have to use a kind of a weird Greek word. It's a verb form of their word for intestines or guts. You see, Jesus felt compassion at the pit of his stomach. A gut-wrenching response to the plight of the needy anywhere we saw it. We read about it all the time in the Gospels. On an occasion when he healed two blind men, when he restored a leper, when he raised a dead widow's son from the grave, we're told many times about these moments where he was moved with, with gut-wrenching compassion. With Jesus Christ as their leader, it's, it's no wonder that the Jesus movement, the church that was born, was marked by compassion. In the early centuries, we find Christians setting up hospitals for plague victims in Syria, for lepers in Cappadocia, that's in the middle of modern-day Turkey. St. Benedict, he established his monastery there at Monte Cassino in Italy, and he ensured that there was a free hospital to care, take care of the sick. He made that paramount, paramount for his monks in, in the abbey. In the Middle Ages, the Benedictine order alone was responsible for more than 2,000 free hospitals in Western Europe. These movements were particularly and thoroughly Christian. Today, if we need first aid, what is it we look for? We look for a, a, a white cross on a green background. If we're in a crisis, it's the red cross that millions turn to for, for charity and for help. At their best, Christians were and always will be people of compassion and charity. I don't want you to think that Christian compassion is a thing of the past or something that happens only far away. I'm glad to say that somewhere as close as this church and somewhere as recently as this week, there will have been many acts of compassion. We care for the lonely elderly. We have a team of over three dozen people visiting them regularly in their homes helping them with almost the greatest scourge of modern society, their loneliness. We care for vulnerable children. We administer grants to single parent families and other homes where life has become difficult. We partner with an agency called Home for Good, one that seeks to, to make sure that every child who doesn't have a home and go into a good fostering or adoptive environment. We provide for those in poverty as we uh, contribute to the Storehouse Food Bank and as we run our Free Food Monday here. We regularly contribute thousands of pounds to poverty relief initiatives overseas. We have a history here in Hamilton Road of two decades or more of helping immigrants in Bangor as we provide English classes and an international cafe, as we craft with and play football with asylum seekers, as we help them with their home office applications. 
I tell you this not to impress you. I, I'm not impressed by our levels of compassion as a congregation here. I'd love to see us do a whole lot more. I, I tell you this simply to make the point that we want to live in a compassionate world and we want to be people of compassion. And for us, all of this is born out of our love for and commitment to Jesus Christ. He, for us, is the source of the compassion that we give. Whenever we introduce the value of compassion, I use that well-worn phrase. I'm sure you've heard it before. We believe a society should be judged by the way it treats its weakest members. I think that's helpful. It gives us a useful test. My question is this. As Bangor moves further away from its Christian roots, is it becoming a more or less compassionate city? I'll leave you to mull that over. If you want to hear my views, ask me over a cup of coffee. Jesus Christ showed us for once and for all that we have a compassionate God, that though he is strong, he did not despise the weak, that though he had all the power in the world, he used it for the powerless. Though he was entitled to a throne, he went to a Roman cross. And on that cross, it wasn't survival of the fittest. He gave himself for us, the weakest, so that we might not only survive, but thrive and be raised up and become children of a compassionate God. Let me pray a brief prayer. Uh, Father God, we thank you that you reveal yourself to us as a compassionate God. Lord, help us to ponder what we've thought about here this evening. That without your intervention into this world, without you revealing yourself to us in Jesus, much of what we have come to take for granted may simply not be here. Lord, as we ponder and as we're grateful for the compassion we experience, let it draw us back to and closer to you, our compassionate God. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.